Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Those are the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and I'm sure they describe all of us so greatly as we also would desire that all the things that would be inappropriate about our lives be removed and we could focus and live in the way day by day that God would find pleasing. After all, that is the wise way to live, isn't it? As was mentioned earlier, we're so thankful that each one has been able to assemble by the blessing of God this evening. And you and I have the opportunity, at least for this part of the service, to give appreciation to a section again of the wonderful Word of God. You may notice some of the outsets of this next slide, in which again we remind ourselves about our reading plan here at the Pippin Congregation this year. Back in January, we set before ourselves to read through the entirety of the Word of God. We now have roughly 87% of it complete, and this past week, we were reading in the Old Testament, among other things, in the book of Daniel. Tonight, our text, as usual, comes from those sections that we read together, and so the lesson will be extracted from the precious message of the book of Daniel. You may notice, secondly on that slide, perhaps the book of Daniel ranks at the top of the list in terms of those Old Testament books that set before us the marvelous providential way that God works His will in the human family, bringing about His will even as it carries over centuries in terms of the way nations interact and behave. Tonight, we really do have a panoramic opportunity to look at some of the brief features, at least in Daniel, and to put before ourselves just how great God is to bring all of that about. Of course, it'll speak much ultimately about the church. I hope that among other things, as we reach at least the conclusion of the lesson, we can be as thankful as ever for the magnitude, the enormity, and just how great an entity and a body the precious church of our Lord really is. As we begin all of that, though, we come on this next slide to do so in the following way. First, the setting, as, you, as usual, is again a matter of some import as it places us certainly in light of the matter of the very text that Brother Eddie read just a moment ago. As you and I retrace some brief steps at least in history, we remember that there was a Babylonian empire. It had risen to great supremacy. It had risen to a tremendous and powerful figure that basically had no enemies, among human enemies at least, that could stand before it. I list briefly some of the thoughts at the top. We each remember that long name that at least when we're young we might have a difficult time pronouncing, but Nebuchadnezzar is perhaps the most well-known Babylonian monarch. As we read about him in books of the Old Testament, we remember that he in fact rose to great prominence. Under his tutelage and leadership, Babylon became a ferocious and cruel war machine. In fact, some of the nations that you and I know about, such as Egypt, was no match for him. We even remember that the Assyrian Empire was no match for them. We immediately jump to the situation we find in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The little nation of God's people, the nation of Judah, found herself on the difficult end of the Babylonian people. We find in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, among other things, a listing is given to where the Babylonians came, and they, in fact, came against Jerusalem more than once. As they did, I would ask you to briefly know, they sieged the city. They hauled off into captivity many of the most notable and noble individuals of, of, the, of the empire. 
among those, might I ask you to notice, were Daniel. Think about being a youngster. The Bible doesn't tell us how old Daniel was at the time that they took him away captivity, but imagine, we might well at least appreciate that likely his parents would not have been taken. Imagine you as a youngster, no doubt just a teenager, hauled off hundreds of miles from where you grew up, hauled off to a far distant heathen pagan land, and in this circumstance and condition, you no longer had access to that temple that you had known and treasured so often. The precious place that you recognized the blessing of God resting, you no longer were in it. Notice the names of four individuals who occupy such a pivotal place in this book of Daniel. On the left, you know these names as given to us in the Word of God are these. The word Daniel means God is my judge. Often in the Old Testament, those names in fact had strong messages, sometimes of faith or of direction toward the matters of God. Daniel's parents named him, God is my judge. We also remember Hananiah, whose name means God has favored. Thirdly, there was Mishael, whose name means who is what God is. And finally, there was Azariah, whose name means Jehovah has helped. Those were the Hebrew names of these four youths. On the right are the Babylonian names, the names that the people in Babylon gave them. Belteshazzar is what Daniel came to be known as. And oddly enough, you and I typically know the other three by their Babylonian names rather than their Hebrew names. A bit of an unusual thing, isn't it? But there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three times the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. The first, 605 B.C., you might appreciate that they had a great deal of success, and it was during that time that Daniel was hauled off into captivity. You'll notice, though, that that wasn't the last time, because the people, including the king, did not heed the words of Jeremiah and did not heed the words of others who brought the Word of God to them, and they rebelled against the very measure of God's punishment upon them. Babylon came two more times. 597 B.C. was the second time. It was during that time that Ezekiel was taken off into captivity. There was to be one final occurrence. Jerusalem was destroyed on that final time. The temple was burned and ransacked, 2 Kings 25, 9 tells us. And we appreciate that, of course, as we look at all of them. You notice that in regard to the last two, there was already a member of God's family, if you please, living in Babylon. His name was Daniel. He ultimately would rise to great prominence because of the special blessing and ability God gave him. He could interpret dreams. He, in fact, had a strong correlation to being able to foretell those matters because of what God had revealed to him. As you and I look then at the next slide, we'll be ready also to appreciate speaking of those dreams, issues like this. As we open to the second chapter of the book of Daniel, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar himself, the Babylonian king, had a dream. However, much troublesome to him was the fact that he himself admitted, the dream is gone from me. When the morning arose, he knew he had had a very prominent dream, but he couldn't remember the dream and he surely didn't know what it meant. He thus made the following demand. He brought all the wise men of the land, the astrologers and the others who were of that particular capability, he thought, and he demanded of them that they not only reveal to him the dream, but also its interpretation. 
a fair amount of the early part of Daniel chapter 2 or is the conversation because these individuals frankly told the king, there is not a man on earth that can do what you've asked. There is no king that has ever asked of an astrologer or other wise man what you have asked of us. Nebuchadnezzar being the monarch that he was, he said, if you don't tell me both the dream and the interpretation, you'll be slain. You will be put to death. And he had the authority to do it. At that point, we notice that that sentence not only included those astrologers and others, but it also included all the wise men, of which was Daniel and those other three young youths that you and I noted a moment ago. It is with that in mind that you notice these are the details concerning this dream. As the chapter unfolds before us, Daniel prayed to the God of heaven, he and his three friends, and the God of heaven revealed in no uncertain terms not only the dream but exactly what it meant. The time came when Daniel revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar. I would like to ask you to notice in quick fashion the features of it. You may notice, as Daniel himself, here's a picture. I'm not again asserting that this is exactly what it would have looked like, but here is one artist's rendition of perhaps Daniel resting before Nebuchadnezzar and making affirmation to him that if you will allow me opportunity, I can interpret the dream. No wonder as you proceed to look then in following, the dream was of a great image, a tremendous image, but it was of differing metallic parts. There was a head of gold. There was arms and a breast area of silver. Beneath that was a midsection and an upper leg section, as you and I would call it, of, of bronze, or as the King James reads it, of brass. Beneath that, there was a lower leg section of iron, and finally the feet. If you can notice carefully, the feet are different yet. They are a mixture of iron and clay. As that dream, of course, is what Nebuchadnezzar had had, Daniel told it to him exactly, and then Daniel proceeded to interpret it. And he interpreted it as, of course, in a very powerful fashion. This was not a reference to a man. It wasn't a reference to men, if you please. It was a reference to kingdoms. And it was a reference to the marvelous working of God amongst the human family. Isn't it true that we see later, especially in Daniel 4, the features that the God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men? Maybe it's fair to say in light of that, you'll notice that there is a stone that's a part of that. I would ask you to notice the particular picture that I placed before us at least identifies the stone or brings it before our point of view. We shall talk in a moment about the feature of the label. Notice this particular author as he has drawn it has referred to the stone as the Christ. We'll of course see somewhat about that in just a moment. You will remember though in that dream there was this great image composed of those parts and the stone of which Daniel spoke was a stone that was made without hands. It was a stone that he said crushed or at least pulverized into the image in its lowest section and that image was in fact burst into powder and blown everywhere. But that stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. There was something very special about that dream, and Nebuchadnezzar knew that it was something very worthwhile. Maybe it's fair to say, as you and I look somewhat quickly at that, why don't we put some more details as it relates to some of the continuing features of it. Those kingdoms of which you and I might particularly speak, 
The kingdoms, perhaps, let me go back to one of the previous slides before we specifically look at that one. At the bottom, the interpretation that Daniel set forth was this. He made known very clearly that these were representative of kingdoms. That is to say, entities that would exist in a national scope and perhaps would do so for a long period of time, at least from the human standpoint. Daniel began very straightforwardly, Nebuchadnezzar, you, Babylon, is the head of gold. He informed him of that piece of information, recognizing that there was something rather pristine, something rather noble as gold is as it related to Babylon. And much study, of course, could be done relative to ultimately other features in Daniel concerning that. But you notice that the information quickly brings us to this. There was to be another kingdom after the first one, after this Babylonian empire. We immediately notice then that Babylon, and I've listed the information for you, Many would argue that Babylon immediately rose to prominence in that year 612 B.C. when she defeated Egypt. Egypt was a very strong empire of the time and when the army of Babylon was finally able to defeat her in that well-known battle of Carchemish. Many would argue that she was now the main player on the world international stage. 612 B.C., but you might immediately notice I have used a second number, 539 B.C., for that Babylonian empire was not perpetual. After it ran its course, after it had served the purpose the God of heaven had in mind for her, she crumbled into the dust, being of history, and she gave way to another. You may notice the Medo-Persian Empire. Now the kingdom of the Medes came somewhat first, but ultimately as an amalgamation took place, the Persian Empire joined her. And later in Daniel chapters 8 and, and 10, though that information is put before us. But we notice 539 on to 331 B.C., a little over 200 years. This kingdom too had its elements of strength. It had its elements of special character. And you might notice that even as you and I look at this book, later you'll notice in Daniel 7 verse 20, the God of heaven again revealed a vision to Daniel in which there was reference to a ram with a higher horn. And he even informs us that was the Medes and the Persians. And the higher horn was the Persians of that too. We notice immediately that God was revealing basically what you and I would call history. He was setting forth what the earth was going to appreciate hundreds of years into the future in terms of these empires. At the time Daniel lived, there was no such thing as a Medo-Persian empire. And yet, the God of heaven revealed that it was to be. May we at least immediately appreciate that we do serve a God for which time is no bound to Him. Did He not say in Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 that from everlasting to everlasting I know the future as well as I know the past? The psalmist even stated it that way in Psalm 90 verse number 2, didn't he? From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. The characteristic of that brings us to note this. Those two portions of that image, if the head of gold was in fact that Babylonian empire and if the silver section represented the Medes and Persians, we remember there was additional sections to come. Namely, what about the bronze or the brass section that came beneath that section of silver? 
Well, you notice immediately and later in this book, again, more information is provided. But what about the kingdom known as the Greeks? From 331 on to 168 B.C., we find the height of that ancient Greek empire. A height that brings you and me to recognize some rather noteworthy individuals like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, who to this day have had a profound influence on philosophy and critical thinking and logic skills. All of them, in fact, were parts of that ancient Roman Empire, or rather the ancient Greek Empire. You may notice that reference is made in Daniel 7 to a he or a male goat. And it is attached to the features that go along with this brassy section of that image. It would appear that that's a reference to Alexander the Great. Probably the greatest of the known Greek generals and the great leaders who in fact it seems conquered everything from India to the far distant reaches of Europe. What a powerful international figure he became. Perhaps it's for another lesson for you and me to appreciate some of the great benefits and blessings to Christianity as a result of these empires. But for now, might we notice that we to this point have only looked at three of the sections. What about some of the additional parts? Again, as we briefly note those pictures as we looked at them a moment ago, you'll notice that nextly, and I'll go ahead and look at it, and then we may revisit that particular slide. There was a section that was, of course, comprised of iron. That was the lower part of the legs, and that was the ones he says was out of pure iron. You may notice with me that as we make a progression through those metals, from gold to silver to bronze to iron, there seems to be a progression in the negative direction. The purest one to the least pure, or at least the most precious to the least precious, if you please. One by one, as we look at all of them, notice this fourth empire, the Roman Empire. It too came on the heels of the Greek one, and ultimately when Rome finally defeated, of course, the Greek city-states and the city of Athens, we remember that they became the ruling empire. And we remember many of the individuals like Julius Caesar and Augustus and a number of the other Caesars, those Roman leaders, Again, many benefits might be appreciated, but oh, what a fierceness should be attached to that fourth empire. Daniel 7, of course, highlights that in some rather notable detail. Perhaps at this point, we could revisit briefly that previous section, that previous slide. A picture that again highlights for us in the order of those kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But you'll notice this image, at least as this artist has drawn it, is not standing nicely upright as before because something has crushed into its legs or at least into a section of it and it's begun to make it crumble and to make it fall. The other piece that was in that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was a stone made without hands, and it crushed into the image in its lowest section. And it, of course, toppled it and pulverized it, ground it, if you please, into powder, and it was blown into every location. You may notice here that stone, that rock, that stone made without hands, and that stone that crushed into the image has relationship to Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing dream. 
What an amazing setting forth of this which was the matter of God's revelation to, through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar and yea, to the benefit of all of who would listen to that at that day and time. You may notice as you look at that also, notice again where the, the stone hit into the image. It didn't hit in the gold section or the silver section or even the brass or the iron section. It was in the lowest section, that section that was the mixture of iron and clay. It was there that the image, in fact, was struck or hit. As we revisit again that next slide, might we quickly observe that as those empires were revealed, you may again notice that several hundred years elapsed. Babylon, again, we noted 612 B.C. But by the time the Roman Empire fell... 476 A.D. is usually the day that's typically given in relation to its fall. And as you look at all of those pieces and parts, hundreds of years of history were re revealed before it became history. The prophetical and providential view of God as He revealed what was to come to pass. May we again observe that no human can look down the stream of time far into the future and claim what the details and exquisite matter are going to be. In fact, you and I realize only God can reveal things like that. And yet the Old Testament is full of prophecies, sometimes written extremely minutely. Many of them you and I could list about when Jesus would be born, how long He would work, how He would die, the way in which His work would proceed. And yet some of that was written over a thousand years prior to it actually coming to pass. That is remarkable. Human hands, you see, in a proverbial fashion, never touched this book. The God of heaven revealed it. He revealed it to those gentlemen who, in fact, wrote so faithfully what they were given to write. As we've looked at Daniel chapter 2 so far this evening, the features of that image, might we quickly say that was not the last matter to be written concerning those features. The issues about those kingdoms and the issues of what would transpire concerning them was so notable that God revealed it to Daniel again. Not in the same way, not with the same imagery, but yet with the same apparent message. I'd like you to consider with me again, very briefly, some of the features in Daniel chapter 7 and notice how they correspond. Likely, we're all more familiar with the Daniel 2 chapter in terms of the image, but notice what occurs in Daniel 7. Let's begin reading, if you'll read verse number 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Let's pause. We have been given a very unusual description. Here's a scene of a vision in which Daniel said, verse number 4, the first beast that he saw rise up out of this troubled sea was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. A lion with the wings of an eagle? How preposterous! Or is it? 
You and I know in the animal kingdom, we are not going to see that kind of circumstance. Despite what our evolutionist friends may tell us, such a thing never was nor ever shall be. But might we notice, a lion with eagle's wings, but he says more than that. He says in verse 4, I beheld till the wings were plucked. The wings fell off, or maybe I should say were removed. And then he says, it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. When you and I reflect upon the presentation of Daniel chapter 4, we see a correspondence that cannot be overlooked. There was Nebuchadnezzar, the man, at the time, the ruling monarch of the greatest empire on earth. And yet he was afflicted due to his own pride and arrogance by the God of heaven with a disease, and he lived like an animal for seven years. He did so for that period of time, and in consequence, ultimately, he was healed, and he did stand up upon his feet again. It appears God here says, this first beast, Daniel, you saw, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon, for which he stands, you'll notice that verse number 4 ends, a man's heart was given to him. For a while he was afflicted with a disease, but then a man's heart given to him again. Babylon was the first beast. What if we look even further, though, and you'll notice, Daniel saw another beast rise up out of that water. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. And it raised up itself, notice, on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. They said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. A bear. But it rose up only on one side. That reminds us again of that dual empire, the Medo-Persian one. And again, the Persian one became the dominant one, rose up on one side. And you and I, from a historical perspective, could give thought to the three ribs and the fact that they represented critical features of what would be the ultimate division of that Persian Empire. God again revealed long before it happened what was to transpire. Notice though verse 6 goes on to a third beast. After this I beheld and lo another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. A leopard? I'm sure each of us immediately give thought to the swiftness and the speediness of leopards. They are, in fact, very fast animals. Might that speak to us about the way in which Alexander the Great rose to prominence? History tells us he did rise to prominence extraordinarily quickly and conquered virtually the entire known world in just a little over ten years. Remarkable. God revealing long before it happened the characteristic features of that third empire, the empire of brass, bronze. You'll notice it says, four, four wings of a fowl, and the beast also had four heads. You and I remember from history when the time came that Alexander died and his empire was divided, four sections. Four sections. Was that again an accident? Absolutely not. The God of heaven knew exactly what was going to happen when Alexander ultimately died, and he died at a rather young age. Maybe it's fair to say as we reflect on Daniel, we can't help but be impressed with God's revelation of all of these matters and Daniel's faithfulness to convey them. As you and I come lastly, though, we notice there was a fourth beast that arose out of that water. 
Verse number 7 of Daniel chapter 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. Remember the iron section of the image we saw a moment ago? Another exact correspondence. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. You might note with me, this beast was not like any of those that had preceded. It was diverse from all of them. And there has been a great emphasis upon its exceeding strength and upon its ferociousness. History records from us that the Roman Empire certainly was of that character. Among all those things, might we notice, though, that there is something that you and I would wish to appreciate one final correspondence. So far, we've noticed four beasts. We remember four sections initially to the image. But we remember there was something else. There was a stone that was made without hands, and it struck in the image. Is there a counterpart to that in the circumstances of Daniel chapter 7? Thanks be unto God, there is. Look a little bit further with me as we arrive at the middle section of Daniel chapter 7. And as Daniel continued to set these matters forth, and as he proceeded to make the correspondences, Daniel chapter 7 Verse number 13 reads it like this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed." What a magnificent proclamation. Here we find then that Daniel in addition saw, verse number 13, in the night visions, one like who? The Son of Man. Jesus frequently referred to Himself, of course, as a Son of Man. It would appear here was a very direct presentation. When that Son of Man came, there was to be a kingdom that would reign supreme over all these others. It would be far greater. It would be far more powerful. It'd be a kingdom, in fact, that wouldn't be left to the whims and fancies of humanity. In fact, it might be at this point, you hold your finger there and look back to Daniel 2 one more time. As Daniel continued to describe that stone that again struck the image, verse 43 reads like this in Daniel the second chapter. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." The correspondence, again, is so remarkable, so compatible, and so faith-building, isn't it? One by one, as we have looked at all of them, we now notice that as Daniel interpreted the features of that image, and as chapter 7 sets before us the blessedness of these beasts, may you and I appreciate that that dream and the revelations of chapter number 7 bring us to a picture that looks like this one. 
Again, this now is an artist's rendition. I, I don't claim that that's exactly what Daniel saw in that vision. Please understand that. But I did think it might at least help us have a greater memory for the events of that chapter. And not only that, of course, it has a great later usage as we come to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. For the correspondence, again, seems far too acute to be accidental. Many of these beasts or something very near like them is seen again when we encounter the book of Revelation over in Revelation chapters 13 and following. As you look at those beasts, notice the one on the right is the one that was diverse from all the others. What a strange thing. You and I could devote many lessons, I suppose, to looking at all of them one by one. Here's another chart that shows correspondences between the events of the second chapter and those of the seventh chapter. You notice the elements of the image in the middle, the elements of the beasts, and finally over to the right, the particular kingdoms that were under discussion. As all of that is considered, I'd like to devote what time is left to the stone. These kingdoms we have looked at like Babylon, like the Medo-Persians, like the Grecians and the Romans, those kingdoms have long since gone away. They're no longer with us. Other empires have risen and they have fallen. But what might be said about the great element of faith that you and I can take, among other things, from a discussion like these? Among other things, might it not be this? The kingdoms of men, in which there are human leaders, in which there are humans that are making the decisions for progression, often those decisions are so filled with folly and they're directed improperly, and they're directed in an ungodly way. God Himself said these kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, as great as it was, it will not last forever. And it didn't. The Medo-Persian Empire, as great as it was, it would not last forever. It would give way to another one, and it did. As great as the Greek Empire was, and at the time, I'm sure no one thought Alexander would ever be defeated. But he died. And his kingdom is no more. The same could be said for Rome. But might we say that in the midst of this, God had affirmed on two different occasions that in the days of those latter kings, the Roman kings, there was to be the established a kingdom. And God was not going to leave it to human hands. Daniel 2.44 had explicitly said that that kingdom would not be left to another people. But rather, it would stand forever. Stand forever. I'm sure all of us like the thought of continuancy and constancy and unchanging character. Sometimes we sing a song in our songbook. Time is filled with swift transition. Naught of earth unmoved can stand. And in that song we sing, of course, about the inviolable will of God and the greatness attached to what is His will and the accomplishment thereof. No wonder on this slide, why don't we reflect upon the church and be impressed yet again with what the Word of God has to say about it. The marvelous church, she still does stand. If you notice the years that I had listed earlier, none of them lasted, even in the case of the Roman Empire. What, 700 years or so? And arguably that might be stretching it. But yet here the church is 2,000 years and we're still, of course, that which the God of heaven not only had as His will, but is a faithful and delightful thing to Him. 
Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11 says, To the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God explored and set forth by you and me as Christians. The precious church of our Lord. The next verse, verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 3 went on to say, To the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had a purpose for the church. And it came about exactly when He said that it would and the way that He said it would. Let's read even further. That time appointed. Remember Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 had told us something about that. It said that when the Son of Man passed through the clouds under the action of days, He would receive a kingdom. All you and I need do is ask, when did the Son of Man pass through the clouds under the action of days? That occurred at His ascension, didn't it? As you and I read in Acts chapter 1, He passed through the clouds. The apostles were looking up and the angelic visitors that appeared with them said, in the same way you saw Him leave, He's coming back. The text reminds us He looked through the clouds and you and I at that point should look for the kingdom. Not 15 verses later we find it. As we turn over to Acts chapter 2, the kingdom was established. It's known as the church. It came about exactly when God said that it would. Notice the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Medo-Persian, those all came in far ancient elements in history. They rose and they fell, but the church still goes onward and shall remain, of course, until the end of time. Notice furthermore, might we say, the God of heaven, of course, asserted in Daniel 2.44 that it, the church, shall stand forever. And along that description, He pointed out that it wouldn't be left to another. Christ Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body. He goes on in that verse to say, "...the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence." He is the head and He has never abdicated. He hasn't left the power, the authority to anyone in the Vatican or anywhere else. He has, in fact, all of it within His disposal. Didn't He say in Matthew 28, 18, "...that all authority, all power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth?" That doesn't leave anything anywhere not subject to Him. No wonder in light of all those things we notice this kingdom, that stone of which we read in Daniel 2, God said it would become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. Even at its best, the Greek empire extended only from India to about what would be present day somewhat east or west of what would now be Turkey. The Roman empire stretched as far but even on over to Spain and even Great Britain. This kingdom would be worldwide. There's not a place anywhere on earth that one would not at least have the opportunity to find members of it. Those that would be its citizens and adherents. What a blessing. What a remarkable revelation to all of us. Again, from the book of Daniel of the ancient era. Maybe finally, as you observe some of those final comments on that slide... We're in position to appreciate, among other things, that the church rests for you and for me in languages like these. Didn't Paul write in Ephesians 5 verse 23 that Jesus is the Savior of the body? And in Ephesians 4 verse 4, there is one body. Aren't you thankful to be a member of that one body? 
Aren't you thankful that God has revealed it in ways that it doesn't subscribe to the weaknesses and the fancies of kingdoms like Greece and Rome and other places? For though those empires had their place, they don't compare to the greatness of God's revelation. And might we even say that in terms of human empires, the United States of America doesn't either. This kingdom, the one of which we speak, may among all other things we say we're faithful members of it. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Reads Revelation 2 verse 10. As you close that slide with me, and appreciate again Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we have in many ways just prepared ourselves for what many other things might be said. But I hope we've each been encouraged. And maybe those words of encouragement, we would close our lesson like this. The book of Daniel is a very interesting political study, among other things, but oh, what things it reveals about the courage of Daniel who found himself in a lion's den. We read about three friends thrown into a fiery furnace, and it helps us be brave and courageous in our stand for truth as well. But among other things, it does point us to the church. We live in an age and a time when that kingdom is a reality. We don't yet look sometime in the future for it. It's sad to say there are people on earth who think the great kingdom hasn't yet been established. They are 2,000 years too late. The kingdom has been here now for 2,000 years, and you and I are blessed to be able to be in it. The Lord is not coming back to establish it. He's coming back to end the reign and turn it over to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Tonight, if you aren't a faithful member of it, don't leave this building lost. Don't leave tonight with all the characteristics of geopolitical truths as God has revealed it because it's focused upon the church. All of those events of ancient empires were focused on bringing that church into reality, and God did it. May you and I subscribe in faith to it and ever live to defend it. Tonight, if you aren't a faithful Christian, it may be you've never been one and you need to obey the gospel this evening. You need to believe Jesus to be indeed that Son of God. You need to repent of your sins and confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and then simply be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have attended to that need at some time, but at this moment you aren't faithful, the church perhaps has lost significance to you, why not make that right? Come back to your first love this, this very night. Let us pray with you and for you. We'd be happy to do it. And if we could be of help, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.